Hello, I'm Luke Clancy, and welcome to a very special edition of the Culture File Weekly on RT Lyric FM. We're recording this program in front of an exceptionally elegant and beautiful, not to mention totally sound audience, here live at the National Botanic Gardens as part of Dublin Book Festival 2022. So, uh, hello, live audience. Hello, eventually, live audience. Uh, so alongside me here today are two writers deeply engaged in capturing the natural world. We have prolific explorer, prolific writer, prolific organizer, prolific radio talker, generally prolific, Aina Lidauna. Round of applause, please. <laughs> And also with us today is Owen Dalton, taking a rare break from his role as caregiver to a recovering rainforest in West Cork, which he's written about in his book, An Atlantic Rainforest. Owen Dalton, welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to do a little warmer up or with you both, and for me as well, I guess, um, to, to um, bring us into the space. So I want you to, to tell us a little bit of psychoanalysis, I suppose, as well as part of it. If you close your eyes and I say the words wild place, I want you to tell us about the image that comes into your mind. What are you looking at in your mind's eye, Owen? I, if, you say, if you ask me to say what comes straight in, into my head, I'm sitting in a treehouse in my own uh, piece of temperate rainforest on the Bear Peninsula in West Cork. Um, there, through the through the deck of the of the treehouse, which is really more of a platform than an actual treehouse, there are three stems of an oak tree emerging up through it, covered in polypody ferns and lichens and epiphytic mosses of all descriptions, um, and those are the indicators of a, of a rainforest of any sort anywhere in the world. All around me are a great multitude of tree species similarly covered in epiphytic lichens, ferns, and mosses. Um, and as I focus in on a, on, on, a, on a branch and a twig of the oak tree in front of my nose, through along the um, the mosses and the lichens, I can see a trail of ants that have made their way up the tree and are going about their business, and the whole place is just buzzing with life, in in birdsong, in in pollen, in in flying insects, it's literally teeming with life. Beautiful wild place, Anna. Bring us to your wild place in your mind's eye. Well, when you said a wild place, I closed my eyes and thought of the cut of the living room floor where my two grandsons went yesterday. <laughs> How can two small boys make such a mess? Talk about entropy. But I suppose that wasn't what you really meant. So I was thinking, when I think of a wild place, I think of the west coast of Ireland in a storm. And you have the waves crashing against the shore. I, I spent last 
not last year, but the year before that, in Kilrush during the COVID, and I saw, got very familiar with, with the west coast there below Kilkee, those lovely cliffs, and that's a wild place, and that's splendid. You have, the, you have the seas coming in, you have them breaking, and the whiteness, the whiteness of the waves when they break against the, the darkness of the sea or the coastline. And then, of course, because I have dived in that part of the world, I am able to imagine what it's like underneath that wild place and what a different place it is there because once you go down you're away from the surface you're away from the noise and you're into a different wild world where nobody is only yourself and the things that are there there's no other things that can happen so you don't need traffic you don't have and in fact you wonder why i took up diving because it's the one sport you do that you can't talk during <laughs> so there's quietness there as well so that's my wild place actually to see. I wish there was somebody to stand up for the East Coast is really missing out here a little bit. <laughs> so feel free, go ahead yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm doing the travelling with you. I, that, those were both, both absolutely beautiful. So, like, there's an image of a wild place. And Owen, in your book, you use this idea of, you know, that, that there we are, we're able to envision what a wild place is. But you use this idea, which you, oddly enough, steal from The Matrix or lift from the matrix about the idea of a blue pill and a red pill. And this is that, I mean, it's something that's it's used in the QAnon uh, kind of conspiracy theory, but the idea in the matrix is that there is something that is real and you can see it or you can choose not to see it, which is kind of, I think, what you're getting at. Tell us about what you're getting at in that analogy, because like, you've both brought us into those places. We can see them even though we're not there, but are they just going to disappear from our mind and therefore our, our attention, our respect? Well, what I was getting at using the analogy of the, the red and the blue pill from The Matrix was the, the point that if you become aware of uh, ecological systems, ecosystems, and how they work, and what, how wonderfully rich and beautiful and fascinating they can be when they're in a healthy state, um, there are two sides to that. The first is just immense joy because it's like as if a curtain was lifted and a whole universe that you may have been only partially aware of previously opens up to you. But the downside of that is that once you become aware of that, practically everywhere you look, you see a completely trashed landscape, certainly in Ireland. Uh, so as an example of that, uh, I could quote, and you're talking about the East Coast, so uh, to bring things closer to where we are here, if you head up, the, the, up into the Wicklow Mountains, much of which is actually supposedly a national park, you'll see almost nothing there. So um, it's, it's, it's grazed by sheep. There's a lot of sika deer. It's essentially grazed to the bone. But if, if that were in its natural state, that would probably be largely temperate rainforest, just like what I have down in my place in West Cork. But it's, it's kept in this completely uh, biologically, ecologically degraded state by constant grazing. The, the red and the blue pill analogy uh, alludes to the fact that most people who, or a lot of people certainly who go to visit the Wicklow Mountains see it as this wonderfully wild place, uh, not understanding that what they're looking at is, in actual fact, an ecological desert. Uh, and taking, taking 
the red pill is like what Aldo Leopold, who was a famous um, American uh, conservationist and ecologist back in the 1930s and 40s, he said that gaining an ecological uh, education, by which he meant an ecological awareness, it means that you have to live alone in a world of wounds because you're able to see all of this stuff that a lot of other people can't. The, 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 the total, uh, what is in, in actual fact a wasteland that other people think is, is absolutely fine. And in the film, uh, the main character, Neo, is offered a choice between the red pill, um, which means he'll, he'll be able to see things as they really are, or the blue pill, which means he'll forget all that and go back to this kind of blissful existence that, that's completely ignorant of the reality of things. Um, so I use that as an illusion for gaining some kind of an ecological awareness. But it feels like a choice. It's that even, if you, even if you know what you're missing, you can still choose not to see it in some way. It's like that's often a choice that happens. You choose to take that particular pill. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I wouldn't see that as... An, as Not saying uh, you're taking it. Yeah, to, to me, once you're aware of how much richer things could be and should be, it makes it impossible to go back. You can't start seeing it, seeing somewhere like the Wicklow Mountains as this wonderful, pristine landscape anymore. There's no going back once you understand just how trashed it is. But you have that, there's this idea which it comes up a lot in your book about the sort of shifting baseline where there just isn't a consciousness of what should be there or what's missing. Well, shifting baseline syndrome was a, is something, it's a, it's a fairly recently uh, conceived phenomenon which understands so much of, of how we as a species relate to the natural world and in our environment around us. And it's basically the understanding that each generation looks at the way things are or were when, when they were young and compares any change uh, to, to ecosystems or the environment around them against that baseline. But the point is that because people you know, go through their life cycle and then a new generation arrives, each generation takes a lower baseline uh, against which to compare changes throughout their lives, not understanding that this is, this is part of a much longer process. So you can go from, it explains how you can go, for example, going back to the Wicklow Mountains, you can go from a really rich rainforest full of all, all of the trophic levels of an ecosystem from wolves and lynx and bears down to just grass and sheep, and people still think of that as somehow natural. It explains that. Aina, you, you do a lot of diving, like sub-aqua diving, and it's like there's an ecosystem that we can't see, but is still in that kind of, you know, it's suffering in the same way and undergoing the same sort of change, but our chances of perceiving it because most of us aren't doing what you, you were doing, aren't diving it over decades and seeing that environment or that ecosystem changing as much as, uh, as what's happening on land, then, then that sort of happens without us knowing. I mean, I, I was really... Uh, tell us a little bit about that, that kind of history, because you, you have over several decades been going down into Dublin Bay and seeing what it, what's down there, that ecosystem that we all miss all the time. I mean, it's a beautiful passage of your, of your book that I really enjoyed. Like, bring us into that undersea Dublin. 
Yeah, I was, I was speaking about my, my diving and how I learned to dive, and that was in the 1970s, I suppose, 1975, 76. And we, we learned to, and I joined with the Irish Tobacco Club, we, we trained in the Markovich pool, and then one glorious day we got to use our aqualungs, not in the pool any longer, but in the sea. So we went out to Colymore Harbour, and we went down the steps, and we sat at the bottom under the water, and took a breath, and it worked. It actually worked. You could breathe under the water. So we sat beside the fish boxes and the lobster pots, and we made all kinds of signals that we were told what to do. And that was the beginning of it. But then we then took to, to going in round Dublin Bay and doing your, doing your swims out and back to Dorky Island and what have you. But it got worse and worse and worse. So you'd go in, and you'd, so somebody would get in first, and they'd say, what's the viz? And the viz was, how far could you see? And in the end, you, if you held out your hand, you couldn't see your fingers. There was that much sediment, there was that much stuff in the water. But when you actually got down to the bottom, between, between Dawkey or Colymore Harbour and Dawkey Island, it goes down and comes up again, does it? There's a channel coming in. And as you dive over and swim across and back, there was a huge carpet of starfish, brittle stars. The place was covered in these, and it was covered in mussels. And the reason why the mussels were being fed on by the, the brittle stars. The brittle stars were pulling them open and eating them. But the mussels, the mussels were feeding on all the wonderful food that was in Dublin Bay. And of course, what the nutrient that they were feeding on was you pull the chain and in a jiffy, it all ends up in the liffy. And this was what Stuff, they were feeding on. Stuff, well, you can call it. They said people are after their lunch. I don't want to be too graphic about it. But at the same time, this was all filter feed. You know, the, 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 the mussels would filter feed it, and then there was huge carpets of them, and the starfish then would gobble up those. And then you got higher up in the food chain, and indeed I recount a where you wouldn't dream of eating anything that filter fed. You wouldn't dream of collecting any mussels. I wasn't Molly Malone. I wasn't going to die of a fever. She died of typhoid fever from what was in the bay in her time. But um, when you got higher up the food chain, it's great being a scientist, because when you got as far as the lobsters and the crabs... They weren't, they weren't filter feeding, you could eat those, and you weren't really meant to be eating lobsters, you would be in very bad order with everybody, but they didn't care about the crabs. The crabs were huge, like the size of a dinner plate. In fact, one of them nearly finished me off, because I had it under my oxter and I was coming up, and next I couldn't breathe, because he had his claw holding on to my breath, my breathing thing, and I thought my number was up. But anyway, you never dive, you never dive alone, and I was able to say to the buddy, <coughs> and he had to get a and get the, get the claw to open. And I tell you, I enjoyed eating that crab that night. <laughs> but then over the years, they built, they built rings, and we were dragged kicking and screaming into, into the, the EU regulations for clean water, and rings end had to be built, and we had to get, not just put it into rings end, but you had to have pr primary treatment, secondary treatment, tertiary treatment. And I used to lecture in Bolton Street in DIT for years, and I used to bring the pupils down. I had, they had masters in sustainable development, and we'd go down and look, at, the, at, at, at Ring's End, at the, at the sewage works there. So what else would you be doing? <laughs> you, you have there, though, that, you know, that some regulation intervened, and, you know, and, that, was, and that was what was protecting a, a, a little environment. But I suppose, Owen, in your book, uh, what you're trying to do, uh, I mean, it comes under the title of rewilding, which is a kind of like a wobbly line, which we'll probably get to in a, in a minute. But maybe just tell us about what the, the project is, because you're kind of seeing the sort of desolation that's happened to an area through various processes, but you're trying to 
to, you're trying to intervene, but at the same time in a way that is not an intervention in, in some senses. Yes, that's right. Um, when I arrived, uh, the farm... Tell us about the, where, where exactly we are now. Yeah. Okay, so it's near Iris on the northern side of the Bear Peninsula in West Cork, and it's very close to the border with Kerry. And the farm that I bought um, was had more or less gone wild over the, over the course of about a century. What had happened was that the family who were living there, the Crowleys, had mostly emigrated to the States, and that had allowed uh, pockets of wild native trees uh, and all of the associated biodiversity, the wildflowers, the insects, the, the mycorrhizal fungi, the whole lot, to start colonizing the surrounding ground and to, to, to spread out and to join up into this wild native forest, which was what attracted me to the place. It was incredibly beautiful. But uh, for the last decade or so uh, before I arrived, that process uh, of rewilding before the, the, the concept what was ever What were you calling invented. it there? Did you have a word? Um, it was a few years before, after I arrived that I became aware of rewilding as a concept, you know. But the place was in a really terrible state when I came. And th there, were, there were two main reason f reasons for that. The first one was that somebody had uh, introduced feral goats into the area. They'd released some domestic ghosts, which had started to, to breed like crazy. So you ended up with a population of about 100 feral goats in the immediate area, um, plus there were sika deer, both of which are non-native uh, invasive species. And they had stripped the whole forest completely bare, so they'd eaten away all of the, the ground floor that you associate with a, a native forest. There was nothing there. They were also preventing the forest from reproducing, so any oak, birch, uh, holly, all of the, the dozen or more species of trees, uh, any seedlings that germinated were immediately eaten, so the, the forest was unable to reproduce. Um, and that was also allowing uh, invasion by a whole bunch of uh, non-native invasive plant species, the worst of which is rhododendron ponticum. Uh, so the whole place was really... I thought there might be a boo from the audience at that point. <laughs> so, the, so, so it was in a really bad state. It was, it was at a point where if nothing had been done for another decade or two, it would have been kind of not too late, but it would have been become really difficult to do anything about it, and there would have been less and less points. But you see, the thing is that we had we had both deer and goats as native species in Ireland. I know it wasn't sika deer; it was red deer, but red deer was native in Ireland. And wild goats, the feral goats that you're referring to, are somebody's dairy goats. But we had the old Irish goat, which was one of the very early species to come. So the problem wasn't actually the goats and the deer, it was the lack of higher predators to keep manners on them. Because the deer and the goats, for though, didn't stop Ireland having forests because you had other creatures to feed on them. You had, you had huge birds of prey, you had, you had your wolves, and these were able to kill them. So in a way, it's not fair to blame the goats. And they would say, you should have brought in wolves. That would have sorted it. Well, I think my neighbours might have had something to say about that. They're all sheep farmers. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it, is, it is one of the, it is one of the, the solutions that comes up in, in the, the rewilding kind of notion. You do kind of admit... Uh, 
it is a great idea, and we'd love more wolves around. But yes, you had to act like a wolf. You had to be the wolf, the top predator. Well, he does, he does yeah, a little yeah, bit of that, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But that there might be a predator who, that we would accept as an apex predator, but that might be a little more... Um, I don't know if user-friendly can be used in terms of apex predators, but... I think wolves is problematic at the moment, Certainly in an area like I, where I live, if, if uh, you were to suggest the reintroduction of wolves, which have every right to be here. I mean, they're a native species. They, they were driven into extinction in where I am around the early 18th century, but I think the last one was shot in Carlo in uh, 18 or 1786. Uh, they should be here, but... Uh, I think we need, to, we, we need to take that slowly because it's a really difficult one for people. Wolves are pack animals. Uh, people are raised on, you know, Hollywood representations of wolves as, the, as these kind of like savage, demonic, uh, horrible creatures that'll take away babies and lambs and all the rest of it. But there is another species, and I completely agree, there's another species that we, we should be focusing on first, and that's the lynx. Um, the lynx, uh, for some people, some, some ecologists don't consider the lynx to be definitely native because there's only one uh, piece of evidence to suggest that they were here, which was a, a bone that was found in a cave in County Waterford um, from an animal that lived about 8,000 years ago. Um, but I think... I, I was recently over in Scotland visiting uh, uh, some rewilding projects over there, and it was both... Uh, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, Aldo Leopold and so on, it was both wonderful to see what's happening there and heartbreaking, because when I, I was comparing it to the actual... the, the total dearth of action in this country by comparison. You know, they are literally just leagues ahead of us. And they've reintroduced the beaver, for example. Uh, there are whole mountains that are coming back to life, m uh, mountain ranges, practically, that are coming back to life because they've brought deer numbers right down. And the wild trees are just seeding out and recreating forests in the most wonderful way. But land ownership is quite different in it, Scotland. It You're is. speaking of huge estates where one person can decide. I mean, mm. in Ireland, our farm sizes don't compare with Scotland at all. Very so, I true. mean, you can't be saying we should be doing what they're doing in Scotland when we have a whole different setup here with ownership I, and everything else. I think you can say that, Aina. I think, but you're absolutely right. You have to be very clear that what's happening in Scotland in ecological terms is absolutely wonderful and magical. But you have to also be, be very upfront about the fact that it's happening based on a very inequitable land ownership pattern. Uh, and I, but I think that gives us an, actually an opportunity to do what's happening in Scotland, but in a, in a way that, that actually involves uh, and, and draws in rural communities and farmers. I think that's possible here, uh, and I think it's essential. We, we don't want to, have to follow the Scottish model in social terms, but in, the eco in the ecological terms, we absolutely should be, I think. Have you come across the, the Eurasian lynx? Have, you, have either of you met one? Apparently they, they like to keep it scarce. Anna? I haven't met one in the flesh. No, I haven't, indeed. But um, they certainly are a top predator in, in, in Europe, certainly. And um, 
they tend to go for smaller species, I suppose, than full-grown stags, but at the same time, they are an apex predator, which is what you want, and they don't have the same fantasy associated with them that wolves have in folklore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's more like they're for cat people rather than dog people, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not that big. They're, they're about the size of a Labrador, uh, so they're, they're not... a big cat, mind you. Yeah, for, but it's bigger than a domestic cat, yeah, for sure. But in Eastern Asia, their, their natural range overlaps Sika deer, for example. And what the, the big problem that we have down where I am in, in West Cork and Kerry are Sika deer generally. I mean, you've got feral goats and other things, but Sika are the big issue. And lynx have no problem taking down adult stag Sika in their range and would do so here as well, you know. I mean, one thing, and I, I very much enjoyed reading your book, one thing I got a sense of uh, your book was that you do spend a lot of time wandering around, spotting a bit of rhododendron on a bit of a cliffside and clambering up and pulling it out. Like, you are constantly working with the land, like, you are part of that ecosystem and you are, let's be honest, a human. I wouldn't consider myself part of the ecosystem. I'd, I'd consider what I'm doing there, I mean, you have to remember that rhododendron was brought in by people. It's not a natural presence in the landscape. Uh, although, having said that, it's a little bit more complicated because it seems that rhododendron was present in the previous interglacial here. So, like everything in ecology, you know, the deeper you go, you find that it's actually not quite so simple. Uh, I mean, if you, if you come out and say carte blanche that people are part of nature, uh, then, you know, are, are you going to say that nuclear weapons are a natural phenomenon? Are you, are you going to say well, that... Well, without, without, without going to extremes, I think in your book, you are a part of nature. You know, like you're quite a, an active one, and you're seeing something that could be corrected, and you're using what scientific knowledge you have, what horticultural knowledge you have, to stops, arrests something that would be a negative development. I mean, all human intervention isn't, uh, isn't negative. And I mean, I think that's exactly what's happening in, in, in the rainforest that you're, you're looking after. You are a positive human intervention. Well, I think we have to understand, I mean, we have to place this, our discussion within the context of what's happening all around us, which is, uh, under, un, it's, you know, scientists are unanimous that we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction event on this planet. And there's one thing that's causing that, and it's our species. Yeah, but I, would say, I would say that we, we're not part, part of nature, really, since we stopped being hunter-gatherers. When we were hunter-gatherers, we were part of nature, we were part of the system. But once we started farming, once we were able to subdue the thing and farm, then that was the leap whereby we were no longer part of nature, but we were using it, and our changes on the earth have all, can be traced back to the fact that we could make more food, have more people, populations could increase, we use more resources, put more stuff into, into the atmosphere, and we all know where but we what, are today. what about the Pleistocene extinctions, Aina? Well, what about them? Well, what, what I'm saying is that it is very possible to have even now, even in, and I hope you're not suggesting that I'm a climate denier of some sort, but even now there is a human having an almost wholly positive effect on a piece of land. I think, I think we do have a choice. You know, I, I think it's not, uh, we're not uh, just kind of robots that are programmed to go out and destroy nature. But 
we have to become aware of what we do and how we operate as a species and start making changes to that. That involves being very, very, having a very, very open and honest discussion with ourselves about, about what's happening. But I, I fully agree with you. I think we, we, we do, the fact that we're sitting here now having this conversation shows that, you know, we can change, we can change. And just as we're causing these problems, we can also be the solution. I think that that's where we really, I mean, you're giving good example, you're, you're rewilding, you're in a position to do this, but the rest, of the, the rest of the people not being in that position really do have to get it, really do have to understand. I mean, we had only the example the other week of that, our wild planet, or a blue planet, and it was being shown in, one in, in, in the point, and um, everybody came, and David Attenborough spoke on the screen, and everybody roared and cheered and said this was great, and then they all walked out, leaving the place covered in paper cups and plastic cups and rubbish, you know, and they were the ones who were taught David Attenborough was sound as a bell, and then this is the mess they were leaving behind. Well, I, I hope... I hope that the people here now today with us are not going to leave their single-use plastic and disposable cups. But we are kind of running out of time. We've kind of come to the end of our lot of time. But Indeed, I we're running out of time in every, in every exactly. respect. <laughs> so, so thank you both very much. Thank you, um, Owen and Aina, for your care for the planet and for your new books. Thank you, Luke.